It's been a tumultuous year, one that's prompted much reflection on the fabric of our society. Race, religion, gender, education, all these being highly debated in almost every forum. Today we hear from a poet who weaves her experiences as a biracial woman into her work. I feel actual fear right now about things like driving and what could happen um, if I were to be pulled over, if my loved ones were to be pulled over. There's such a, a, a finite realm of time in which uh, I could possibly um, save myself, you know, in, in that situation. I'm Sarah McConnell, and this is With Good Reason. Later in the show, we look at the history of segregation in American sports. Around the turn of the century, what happens is the select number of African-American athletes are, in most cases, eliminated from predominantly white organized sport. But I always say, with three major exceptions, African-American athletes would always be able to continue to, in a select degree, play in predominantly white college sport. They would always continue to be an integrated sport in the sport of boxing and an Olympic competition. But first, the phrase driving while black has been around for more than a decade. But the issue of racial profiling and harassment hasn't gone away. My first guest today is an English professor, a poet, and a biracial woman. Kiki Petrosino joins me in the studio to talk about her poem titled, Letter Beginning My Body as a Text. Kiki is an associate professor of English at the University of Louisville, Kentucky, where she also directs the creative writing program. She's also a fellow at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Let's begin with Kiki reading an excerpt from her poem, Letter Beginning My Body as a Text. I woke up this morning with my mind stayed on freedom. That ain't no harm. I drove my car this morning with my mind stayed on freedom. That ain't no harm. I held my hands at ten and two, my mind stayed on freedom. That ain't no harm. I spun the warm wheel of my life so smooth this morning. No harm. I drove towards sunrise this morning, all morning my mind stayed on freedom. No harm. No harm. No harm. You, too, must learn to read. Kiki, what had inspired you to write If My Body is a Text? My friend Kim Brooks, who is a novelist and essayist, had was working on an essay about how overwhelming it is to turn on the news and be constantly barraged with accounts of violence, um, particularly against vulnerable populations, particularly people of color, and to be brought into um, people's most intimate moments, their deaths, without knowing them and without um, having any practical means to help, right? We hear about these things after the fact. So while she was writing the essay and thinking about these issues, uh, she called me um, kind of distraught about kind of the latest spate of, um, of deaths. And I conceived this as a, a letter to a kind of uh, distant but also close American other the part of us in our culture that uh, harbors implicit bias, um, uh, the part that makes quick judgments about people based on their physical appearance without knowing what those people's experiences may or may, or may not have been. 
Um, so as a person of color myself, as an African-American, I feel actual fear right now about things like driving and what could happen um, if I were to be pulled over, if my loved ones were to be pulled over. So that's why the, the poem says, you know, slim chance of saying what I need to say. I feel like there's such a a, a finite realm of time in which uh, I could possibly save myself, you know, in, in that situation. Wow. Yeah. You really think that? I do. Yeah. And I'm a person who studied, who studies language and loves language. And uh, I feel like in that, in a moment like that, that's when language actually matters. And I would, I don't know what I would come up with, right? Um, because it seems to me that both parties are in a moment of extremity at that time. The law enforcement officer is feeling perhaps uh, afraid too. And I think that's clear from some of the things we've seen and some of the things we've heard. And when both parties feel that much fear, what can each do to take that fear down? Have you had thought experiments? What you thought, if somebody pulls me over like this, what will I say to diffuse that person's fear? Mm -hmm. I am thinking about it right now. I don't know if I have an answer. The rule of thumb is usually not to say much at all and just to comply. Nobody in your family ever gave you the talk. Um, sure, of course. You mean the talk that uh, African-American children receive from their African-American parents about how the best ways to interact with police? I definitely got the talk. I definitely got that talk. To be respectful, to comply, to, um, to uh, you know, yeah, to be professional, to be polite. Absolutely. Absolutely. I got that talk. You realize yeah. I never gave that talk to any of my three daughters. Wow. Yeah. I mean, do you think, did, do you, what do you think about that? I'm going to ask you a question now. I'm shocked because I'm realizing for the first time it had never occurred to me. Yeah. It didn't occur to me they'd get pulled over. And of all the many things I told them to look out for, from lightning under trees and storms <laughs> yeah. to um, watching for toddlers when you're backing up in the driveway right? Mm -hmm. to be careful of men during breakup situations. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, race and gender are tied together in this, I think. Um, it could be that my, my uh, parents were motivated as much by the fact that I would be a woman in the in public as they were by the fact that, um, you know, I'm a woman of color interacting with, um, you know, authority figures in public. Plus, I thought the talk was usually given to African-American sons. Yeah, yeah, right. So not, not having any brothers or any sons of my own, I'm not sure exactly how the talk is different, though, you know, certainly um, someone like ta Coates in, in that wonderful book that he's just written, uh, between the world and me um, talks about that. Talks, you know, writes that book as a letter to his son. That's a part of one's upbringing as a person of color, for sure. Yeah. So, in your poem, "If My Body Is a Text," what do you mean? If my body is a text. Well, um, the the body that that is, in a way, marked as being different, right? The body marked by race, the body marked by gender, is a kind of text that is read by by the mainstream, right? You feel like you're shorthand. You're a text for yeah. a certain reaction. Right. You know, so if I'm in the public sphere and I present as a light-skinned black woman, you know, I'm actually multiracial in terms of my own background. But I think that what 
what comes across visually when I'm in the public sphere is the fact that I have African-American ancestry. And so those markers, that phenotype is read almost as a text. And who's reading me? You know, as scholars have said, right, or uh, the double consciousness, right? One ever feels his two-ness. In the public sphere, you must be aware of not only how you're interacting with people, but how you must look to others. So the poem is about, you know, if the body is a text, then how should we be reading this text? The you in the poem is the you that I would want to be able to read the text of the body in a way that understands that that body doesn't mean any harm to to the you. The you is the police officer? Uh, the you might be the police officer. I think the you is, is implicit bias, right? Um, whoever may hold implicit bias. It isn't just that we're talking about, you know, white police officers or something like that, or even white people. I'm talking to everyone, and I include myself in this too, who um, we harbor these implicit biases and we don't question them until, you know, instances like with what we've been seeing, you know, someone takes an action quickly out of fear or uh, misreading a piece of body language or a miscue of some sort. Was a young Kiki ever at Monticello seeing the 13th Amendment? A current Kiki was um, just a few weeks ago during the um, National Endowment for the Humanities 50th anniversary. There was a huge summit on race at Monticello. And as part of that, I believe a copy, original copy of the 13th Amendment was placed in the museum at the Visitor Center of Monticello. Like a lion? Yeah, it was, you know, it was one piece of parchment, one large piece of parchment. Um, Most of the page was blank, actually, but it had been browned from age, like foxed a little bit. Um, The writing was uh, a slanted kind of handwriting that slanted first in one direction, then the other direction. So to me, it was almost like a face, the face of a lion hanging over the space. It was a really powerful experience. Yeah. Why? Well, the 13th Amendment was the amendment that abolished slavery, actually. Um, But I think, like many Americans, I had never read the whole entire amendment. Um, And what it actually does is it abolishes slavery except in punishment for a crime. So slavery is actually still kind of on the table as something that could be, you know, given to someone as a punishment for as a punishment for a crime. And at the summit, um, at least one commenter was talking about the criminalization of the black body itself. If you criminalize blackness, then slavery can persist in one form or another. So, you know, it was also, you know, it was a beautiful looking document, but it was also quite frail. It was also quite mortal. Lincoln's signature is on the document, which apparently was a was a rarity. But because he had fought so hard for the passage of the amendment, um, he was given the privilege of signing it with his entire name, Abraham Lincoln, whereas before I had only seen A. Lincoln on letters that he had that he had signed. Um, so it's like this piece of parchment was something that the nation cared about very much. At the same time, it's a flawed document. It's a fragile document. It grants freedom, but that freedom seems to have always been contingent in some way. When you look back at the police video shootings that are so horrifying, the entire nation, Mm -hmm. have you come up with any thoughts 
you or or friends or anyone mm-hmm. you've talked to, have you come up with any thoughts on what we might do to put an end to this? Um, I think that the solution, and maybe this is now a reversal of what I've been saying about language, but the solution must be in language in the sense that by opening up a dialogue among people between law enforcement and the communities they serve, for example, um, understanding will flow from that. I think that implicit bias succeeds when nothing comes around to question it. Right. When you have these biases or prejudices and you never have to question them because you don't encounter anyone different from you within your day. You know, I mean, I live in I live in Louisville, Kentucky, um, and uh, I could go through my whole day without interacting with people who are very different from me. You know, I could drive to work, uh, drive home. Um, But when I actually, you know, I enjoy taking the bus uh, and going around my city. That's when I see everyone who lives in my community, everyone who's there with me. We all share the space that it's ours to take care of and to take care of each other. Um, So I think that we need to talk to one another more. I think that communities need to be invited to interact um, with law enforcement in a positive and redemptive way, in a way that 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 the, the police can feel a part of the community rather than having this adversarial relationship, which we've been seeing. It's really sad to see how frightening these situations are for police officers. You hear it in their voices. Yeah, yeah, I definitely do. And that's kind of where I think the poem comes from. Um, the, uh, the other theme, too, is black literacy itself, which has such a long history. I mean, in in the Reconstruction era, one of the first things that the newly freed slaves wanted to, wanted were schools. They wanted their children to learn to read. And that very literacy in the context of slavery was a threat, right, to the system. But literacy is something that everyone needs. You know, we all need to learn to read texts and language, but we also need to read each other in a, a genuine way. Kiki Petrosino, thank you so much for sharing your poetry with me and your insights on With Good Reason. Thank you. Kiki Petrosino joined me to talk about her poem, Letter Beginning, If My Body is a Text. Kiki teaches English at the University of Louisville, Kentucky, where she also directs the Creative Writing Program. She's also a fellow at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Coming up next, the evolution of African-American sports leagues. During the century of racial segregation in the U.S., many all-black sports leagues and teams were formed and some of the nation's best athletes played for them. But with the onset of integration, many African-American sports leagues began to disappear. My next guest, David Wiggins, is co-author of the new book, Separate Games, African-American Sport Behind the Walls of Segregation. David is co-director of the Center for the Study of Sport and Leisure and Society at George Mason University. 
Dave, you write in your book that the hardening of racial lines during the first half of the 20th century eliminated almost all of the African-Americans who'd played on white teams before then. That surprises me to learn there were African-Americans who played with white players. You know, in the latter stages of the 19th century, uh, we had a a select number of African-American athletes who gained national and sometimes international reputations for their athletic exploits. This is not long after the end of the Civil War? Yeah, I'd say for the 20, 25 years following um, the Civil War, a number of very, very talented and highly skilled African-American athletes. Like who? Isaac Murphy from Lexington, Kentucky, one of the great jockeys of all time, captured three Kentucky Derbies, the first jockey ever to win back-to-back Kentucky Derbies. Marshall Major Taylor, probably the greatest bicyclist of the latter stages of the 19th century. Uh, Moses Fleetwood Walker, who played Major League Baseball. Uh, In fact, one of the great myths of sport history is that Jackie Robinson was the first African-American to play Major League Baseball. That's not true. Uh, Moses Fleetwood Walker played with the Toledo Mud Hens in 1884, which was in the International League, and at that time had major league status. Was he a household name in white households? No. No, he wasn't. Um, much of the information we about have about Moses Fleetwood Walker comes from the black press. Uh, so we don't have a whole lot of information about him. Uh, but, but yes, he was the first African-American to play major league baseball. Jackie Robinson is really the first African-American to play modern Major League Baseball when he signed with the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1945. So was there a period where we had integration in sports, then segregation, then integration again? Yeah, that's, a, that's in essence what happens around the turn of the century. What happens is the select number of African-American athletes are in most cases eliminated from predominantly white organized sport with three major exceptions. African-American athletes would always be able to continue to, in a select degree, play in predominantly white college sport. They would always continue to be an integrated sport in the sport of boxing and typically allowed to play and participate in Olympic competition. So those are three kind of three major exceptions at the turn of the century. So what year and when did African-Americans start forming their own all-black organizations? Well, they, it's important to note that even when a select number of African-American athletes were realizing national and international attention in the latter stage of the 19th century, there were certainly still all-black teams and all-black leagues, even at that stage, latter stages of the 19th century. Baseball is the classic example. You had clubs in New Orleans and Savannah, Georgia, Charleston, South Carolina, uh, the Cuban Giants uh, are the most famous. Some people consider them the the first all-black baseball team. Traveling in, in the South was difficult for them. They had uh, difficulties oftentimes finding housing. They oftentimes would stay with black families who would feed them and put them up for a night or two, uh, and often oftentimes played against white teams. So you're saying... There were other sports that also organized into all-black leagues. Absolutely, in, in virtually every sport. But baseball is the one that's been most written about. And I would contend it has to do with the fact that for, for a long, long period of time, baseball was our national pastime. Baseball 
had always been seen as the great leveler in society. The rhetoric had always been that baseball um, allowed everyone to participate regardless of race, creed, or color. And people, historians have, have said, you know, if you want to know something about American culture, you'll gain a greater understanding of baseball. In these early days, were there also nascent African-American basketball leagues? Not necessarily leagues, but there were teams. Uh, the most famous would be the Harlem Globetrotters, um, a team that was run by Abe Saperstein, a Jewish entrepreneur. And at one time, the Harlem Globetrotters were a serious basketball team. What period of history is this? Many of these all-black parallel sports teams came out of the decade of the 1920s. You know, sport historians refer to the decade of the 1920s as the golden age of American sport. You know, you had, what, Babe Ruth playing for the New York Yankees and... um, Newt Rockne. Newt Rockne, the great coach uh, at Notre Dame. Red Grange, the galloping ghost from the University of Illinois. Uh, Jack Dempsey in boxing, Gene Tunney in boxing. Historically, black colleges and universities, many of them established athletic programs with highly skilled athletes and, you know, just phenomenal organizations, really. So if the 30s represented the heyday, what led to the dissolution of these teams eventually? Integration. Once Jackie Robinson... Uh, came up with the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1947. It wouldn't be too long that Negro League Baseball died out. Black fans certainly began to flock to Major League ballparks to watch those black athletes, those black players that had been signed by various clubs. And uh, Negro League Baseball did not survive too long after um, the integration of, of that sport. What, again, had necessitated having these separate leagues before integration came along? Well, they, they, um, you know, African-American athletes were just finding it very, very difficult to engage in integrated athletic contests. But it wasn't just social. They were not allowed. Yeah, in some cases, just not allowed. You know, Major League Baseball is the classic example. Um, After Moses Fleetwood Walker had played for the Toledo Mudhens, there were no other African-Americans to play in Major League Baseball until Jackie Robinson was signed in 1945 and ultimately came up and played with the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1947. And professional football serves as an interesting example of this, too. And, and African-Americans, a select number of African-Americans, were allowed to play in the NFL up until 1933. And then starting in 1933 until... 1946, there were no African-Americans in the National Football League. Because of rules that were passed? No, it wasn't because of rules necessarily that were passed. There was one man in particular that seemed to play a, a leading role in um, the segregation of, of the National Football League, and that was um, George Preston Marshall, the southern-born owner of the Washington Redskins. You know, had led this segregationist approach to the, to the National Football League. And not surprisingly, uh, the Washington Redskins would be the last NFL team to ever integrate. This was a um, gentleman's agreement among the owners that no more African Americans would be allowed in the sport. Until 1946, 
when the uh, Los Angeles Rams signed Kenny Washington and Woody Strode to a contract. And again, it wasn't rules, but at that point, it was competition. Yeah. People realized that if they wanted to compete, that that they were going to have to try as best they could to recruit and sign the best athletes that they could, irrespective of race. I mean, it was gradually. It wasn't something that happened overnight, obviously. Uh, It it took many years for this to take place. Uh, It's almost like two steps forward and one step back. Not every team would have an African-American on their roster until 1959. And that's when the Boston Red Sox signed an outfielder by the name of Pumpsy Green. And so that gives you an idea of just how long that process of integration was. It just took for, it seemingly took forever. And would you say the longer a team had held out from that, the more likely the culture at that team had been of we don't want to cross the racial barrier. It was deliberate. Right, right. And that's certainly what happened with the Redskins and George Preston Marshall. It's a, the team didn't really integrate, um, and he was, in essence, forced to. He certainly didn't want to integrate, and he held out for a long period of time. These first, these first African Americans that found their way into predominantly white organized professional sport were typically quite good. This initial wave of African Americans into Major League Baseball, many of them went on to be members of the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. Um, you know, including Willie Mays and Hank Aaron and athletes of that ilk. Uh, so these initial players were, extra- were, were extraordinarily gifted and talented. Can you see, from your vantage point of being steeped in this, vestiges of earlier America when our teams were segregated? Are there things that you can see that maybe I don't because you know the history? Well, I think there's been a rise and fall of what I think of as kind of racial and ethnic succession in sport. For example, you know, the first great boxers in this country in the mid to latter stages of the 19th century, they were of Irish descent. John L. Sullivan, John Heenan, John Morrissey, these kinds of folks. Gentleman Jim Corbett. And boxing is interesting to me because at certain times in our history, it seemingly there's been overrepresentation of certain racial and ethnic groups in the sport. In the early part of the 20th century, boxing was dominated at one point by Italian-Americans, then African-Americans, and then Latinos. But you see it in other sports, too. It's a kind of striving. It's a kind of arc of we've arrived, we're struggling, we move up, we move over. Well, interestingly enough, one of my good friends at Purdue. His name is Randy Roberts, who's written, he's a prolific author. He's written quite a bit about sport and written a lot about boxing. And one of the things he always says, you know, Dave, if you want, if you want to find out who the heavyweight champion of the world is, find out who is on the lowest rung of the economic ladder. Because I think you're exactly right. It is this striving. It's, it's trying to make a better life for oneself. Now you see so few African-Americans playing baseball. Um, baseball is being played by folks, to a great extent, folks from, from elsewhere, you know, from Latin America and elsewhere. On the other hand, basketball and professional football, there are a large, large number of African Americans playing those two, two particular sports. Uh, and I'm kind of fascinated how that's changed a little bit over, over time. 
Well, Dave Wiggins, thank you for sharing your insight with me today on With Good Reason. Thank you. It's been nice being here. David Wiggins is co-editor of Separate Games, African-American Sport Behind the Walls of Segregation. David is a professor of sport history at George Mason University. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods. Support also comes from the University of Virginia Health System, connecting doctors and patients through telemedicine to deliver high-quality care throughout Virginia, the U.S., and the world. UVAHealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Allison Quantz is our senior producer, Elliot Majerzyk is our producer, and Kelly Libby is our interim associate producer. Jeannie Palin handles listener services, and our intern is Georgiana Reed. For the podcast, go to iTunes or to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.